we have gone to the Indian Pediatricon Conference, which is held in Pune this year. It's the uh, National Pediatric Intensive Care Conference. And we managed to sit down with Brenda Morrow from Cape Town. Um, so welcome, Brenda. Um, could you please introduce yourself and tell us who you are and why you're here? Thanks very much. Yeah, so I'm I'm Brenda Morrow. I am a physiotherapist by training. Um, I think the reason that I'm here is because I am currently the president of the World Federation of Pediatric Intensive and Critical Care Medicine, um, and I was invited to to deliver a plenary and, and some talks and a workshop at this meeting. Um, so I come from Cape Town, South Africa. Um, I am my position there is as a professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Child Health with the University of Cape Town, and I'm based at Red Cross War Memorial Children's Hospital. Um, and I have a number of, of roles there, including overseeing the research program in the pediatric intensive care unit, as well as ongoing an ongoing clinical role um, in physiotherapy. Uh, so I'm engaged in physiotherapy, practice, research and education. Is that all? <laughs> I made the mistake of writing my own job description when I got this position and, and just didn't want to let anything go. So, yeah, I do. I do a fair amount. If you want to get things done ask a busy person. So that's the reason why you're there, I'm sure. So Brenda, um, your talk was about uh, global PICU and the challenges and the future um, of that. And you ended it with a with a call to arms, really, about what should and must indeed happen. Um, but you des- described some really quite frightening situations in the areas of greatest need. There, may, there might be one PICU bed per per million children, which is just um, unimaginable, really. Can you just tell us, I know that, that Africa, especially Southern Africa, is your area of expertise, but tell us a bit about some of the, is it high lights or low lights or the, or the um, um, things you can tell us about um, critical care within that um, scenario? Thanks. I think I was really just trying to highlight the huge inequities and gaps um, in pediatric intensive and critical care services across the world. So we have this problem. I mean, clearly the, the, the burden of disease is weighted towards your low income regions hugely, particularly Africa, India are, are one of the, the main problems globally. Um, but when you look at the availability of healthcare resources, it's virtually not available at all throughout Africa in terms of specialist services for children specifically. So there is some healthcare infrastructure, but it's largely primary. Um, there's very, there are very few speciality trained healthcare workers, nurses, pediatricians, um, and you know you count the, the intensivists on, on sort of on two hands, um, which is really frightening. You know, if you look at the numbers, um, we're looking at under one per 100,000 in in some regions um, in South Africa even. You know, it's it's just it's untenable. Um, even in South Africa, which is relatively well resourced compared to the rest of Africa, there is a hugely unmet need for critical care. You know, the the, the estimated need is is approximately 30 um, beds per 100,000 children. And again, we we have under one in in one region, one, under one per 100,000 children in one region in South Africa. Um, in South Africa, we have about 150 publicly funded PICU beds for the entire country. And I say we're doing well compared to the rest of Africa. You know, if you look at the at the global map of pediatric intensive care provision, it's basically empty for the whole of, of Africa. You know, some other regions are doing better. So South America seem to be be managing the situation uh, a lot better than, than we are. Um, India, in terms of, of healthcare infrastructure, um, is doing considerably better than Africa as well. Um, 
and they they have a similar burden of disease. Um, their mortality is not fundamentally different at this stage, um, but you know, but I think that that the progression has been much more much more obvious um, in those countries. And so, really, yes, it's 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 this big it's this big gap um, in healthcare, which leads us to ask what what should be available, what's appropriate to be available um, across the world. But the solution isn't as simple as just sticking in the intensive care beds. Obviously, um, this is the intensive care beds are almost a endpoint of a very complex healthcare system, um, and it's not just if we put in a few mega intensive care units into the middle of Malawi, then child's mortality would increase, is it? No, I mean, absolutely not. And in fact, it might have the opposite effect. Um, or certainly may seem to have the opposite effect. And I, th- I think, you know, it, just building intensive care units, starting invasive ventilation without actually putting the preliminary structures in place is likely to cause more harm than good. And there's, there's some evidence for that, um, that starting invasive mechanical ventilation programs without sufficient training, infrastructure, maintenance um, in place actually causes more harm than good. So, so you know, my premise really is that critical care is a continuum of care. I believe critical care includes primary and community care. Um, In low middle income countries, most critical illness is preventable and it's hugely treatable. It's amenable to treatment if it's recognized early and if basic care is implemented early. And so if we can get those things right, I think we're going to go a long way to reducing childhood mortality and morbidity. And I believe that is then part of the critical care continuum. Um, you know, that is that is by definition, that is critical care. We're preventing life threatening illness or injury. If we can get that right, we can also reduce the number of children who would stand to who would need intensive care at the top of the pyramid. So intensive care with high technology, life sustaining therapies, um, I believe that it it would be helpful to have where where it's possible um, for those children, hopefully a few children who who actually ultimately would need those services. Um, but I think we we cannot. I think it's un, it's un, unreasonable to think that we'll be able to service the world's children in terms of intensive care resources. But if we can get critical care right. I think that's something we can achieve and it is completely feasible. Um, and I, so I think that we should see primary care, community care as part of that critical care continuum. I think every child does have a right to have that basic level of care. And I do believe that's part of the human right um, to, to health care. And so I would really push for that universal health coverage in that, um, in, in that context. Uh, but no, I don't believe that intensive care units should be popping up every, everywhere. I don't think it's appropriate for intensive care units to be appearing before those other structures are put in place. Um, I think there needs to be a stepwise approach to improving basic critical care services and progressing towards ultimately intensive care if if they get to that, if and when they get to that point. Um, but you can't just jump in and fix it. You know, and we see with, you know, the, the, the first ICU you mentioned from, from Malawi, I mean, their, their mortality rate over the first two years is 27% which is really high. Of course, there's no way of knowing what would have happened to those children before. Um, in all likelihood, you know, more would have died. Um, it seems very high, but you know, th- there's a belief that, that that offering that level of care 
at that time, at that place, is now appropriate. They have the training in place for both intensivists and nurses. They have a space. They have the equipment. They have the maintenance and the, you know sustainability. And they're actually now doing the research to identify what is is working for them and what's not working for them. And so I think that's that's the right approach. It's been a long time in coming. You know, they they started training. Attempting to train um, intensivists 20, 30 years ago, um, and it's only now that we're actually able to implement an actual intensive care unit. Brenda, just uh, one of the things that Red Cross has been well recognised for is your triage system in yes. terms of who gets admitted to your ICU, because that's a very important question yes. in in global world. Because I think one of the th things that we need to make sure is that the right type of child gets admitted to the ICU because otherwise the resources would just go down the drain. So how does your triage system work? So so the triage system does change. So the policy, you might have seen there was a publication some years ago, and that was really in the height of, of um, resource limitations in our setting, but also in um, in the light of, of unavailable um, medications for HIV. Um, where we had to make resource limiting decisions and rationing decisions for who was admitted um, based on aspects you know like untreatable diseases and um, children with um, likely poor outcomes um, children who would likely have a very long stay in ICU with a poor outcome at the other end untenable situations where where the treatments would would cause more harm than good. Um, and I think I think the rationing needs to happen on an individual ICU level according to what is available. And it might be changing from year to year, you know, depending on the available budget and what would be appropriate. Because, yes, you want the best outcomes for the greatest number from a utilitarian perspective and you want cost, cost effectiveness. You want the greatest dividends in the light in light of the available resources. And and so so the, the rationing approaches and admission policies I think have to change. I don't think they can be absolute. Um, they need to be set, but they need to be reconsidered as disease burden changes, as resources change, as staffing changes. Um, and that's that's really what Red Cross does is it considers what what the current re available resources are in terms of both staffing, money, equipment, beds, et cetera, um, and then looking at aspects like burden of disease, ongoing care, what will the child need following ICU potentially. So it, it's not written in stone. It, it evolves as, as and when your resources change. Ab ab absolutely, and I think that's appropriate. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And similarly, the ICU in Malawi was, you know, they, they had a, a six-bedded ICU, very limited resources, and they were very clear that they were only admitting children who had um, a likely good outcome. Um, they excluded children with known severe comorbidities, for example, or those that were likely to have to, to spend a long time in the ICU as well, which I do think is appropriate. Um, but do you think there's going to be a trickle-down effect in Malawi? Um, we've seen this if like a trickle up effect yeah. in neonatology, yeah. um, where it's quite linear in the UK, the um, threshold of viability has gone down by one week every 10 years. So it was 28 weeks and 27, 26, 25, 24, 23, and recently started resuscitating 22 weekers. Controversial, yes. but um, well, that's what's happening. But nowadays, if you're a 26, 27 weeker, no one bats an eyelid. That's just pretty much standard intensive care in neonatology when 50 years ago that would have been extreme and we would have been doing the same 
intake of breath as we just did when we talked about 22 weekers. So that trickle-down effect is important and those skills that just develop over time. Well, the same thing happened in Malawi that in that there is now an intensive care unit which can ventilate and can do what we in the UK call level three care. What effect will that have on the paediatric lower dependency care on the wards and the emergency departments? So, so I think it's not as simple as saying the ICU is going to have that effect. I think Malawi has been very smart. Um, and so if we just look at Queen Elizabeth Hospital, you know, they got their emergency department working really well with a really effective triage system, a really effective flow and process. Um, once a child uh, you know, presents to the emergency department, really good referral to inpatient care, in, inpatient services. They got all of those things right first. And that was you know, 2005, 2006 that they were getting those systems in place. You know, they then looked at their training needs. They sent people for training. Malawi is now training specialists and subspecialists themselves. And and they, they have a nurse training program in place as well. And so I think I think it's all of that that is going to be contributing to improved care. And yes, certainly, I, I just think it's a snowball effect. But I don't think it's any one thing. I think having the intensive care unit available for those, for specific patients that stand them to benefit the most is really useful. Um, and certainly on an individual case basis, you know, I think it's the right thing to be doing at the right time for that group. Um, you know, if you look at one of the neighboring countries, they're not there yet. They don't have established training. Um, you know, they, they, they don't have capacity. They don't have spaces, equipment, finances for sustainability in the longer term. Um, and I don't think they're there yet. But, but Malawi's done this the right way. And I think it's only going to grow from here. Um, my suspicion is, is that other centers in Malawi are going to be opening um, high dependency units, followed by potentially intensive care units. Certainly, Bubble CPAP has been rolled out fairly widely now. Mm. Um, since the last time I went there, it's a colleague just has just come back and said, you know, it really has has changed remarkably um, and improved. And I think that's that's the right way to go about it is that that systematic stepwise approach um, and ensuring now it's sustainable. They can they can continue. I'm not to be ne too negative, but the problem of uh, training local staff is that there, you have to look at the other side of the coin, which is brain drain, because one of the things that has been happening in the UK is that there's a tremendous shortage of doctors in all areas. And the easiest thing for the UK government to do is to import people from all over the world. Yes, including including where I come from. Yes. Well, absolutely. I think yes. half the intensive care doctors in the UK are of South African origin. Yeah. I'm exaggerating, perhaps. But I think one of the unfortunate things is that you have places like Malawi who would train their nursing staff around. And then before you realize they get invited to somewhere else with a, a much better salary package, et cetera. How do we stop that? I mean, you know, you can't just sort of put a neat government edict and sort of say, no way. How do we enhance the quality of work and life for these individuals locally so that they don't have to sort of pack their bags and leave? So, so I think I can, I mean, I can use our, the training program that, that I've been involved in for, for some time now, just as an example. So, so that's the African Pediatric Fellowship Training Program, APFP, um, that's based at University of Cape Town in, in our hospital. And we've, we've been um, training pediatric specialists and subspecialists um, and nurses and physiotherapists um, for some time now. The program started in 2007 with the idea that we're training Africans in Africa for Africans. Um, and so it's it's regionally relevant 
training that's that is is contextually appropriate so in terms of of disease burden in terms of available um, infrastructure equipment and systems um, and so we actually we engage with the health ministries with the university structures the hospitals um, as well as the fellows um, we help them to develop regional strategic health plans um, and then in fact they identify potential fellows based on on their um, the requirement that they go home so they, they they get funding to come and train with us um, with the requirement that they go home obviously that doesn't we, we can't keep them at home forever but in fact we found that that this program because I, and I think it's because it's it's teaching meaningful stuff you know it's diseases that that are recognizable and appropriate to the region it's interventions that are appropriate to where they come from what with some advocacy um, we support our fellows in in advocating and building health systems and we've actually got a 90 percent retention rate two years post um, post fellowship at this point um, we have you know about 80 percent of of our past fellows are now engaged in teaching um, themselves both under and postgraduate teaching and we're actually supporting the development of curriculum development in our partner countries so we have I think 19 partner countries at the moment. Um, we've trained almost 200 fellows since 2007 in different, lots of different specialities. And they now training other people. And, and, and they also assume leadership positions. So once they go home, we equip them in, in, in leadership skills and communication skills as well as teaching skills. And, and so now many, many of our fellows now have leadership positions within their own hospitals. And I think that's what's making them feel valued they're able to make a change. We've got so many of our fellows that have these wonderful stories of, of being able to develop services, improve services, improve systems. Um, and so, so you know, Malawi is what one of the authors on that paper is one of our past fellows who was integral in, in starting that ICU. John Appiah in Ghana started a new ICU. We have one in Kenya that was just started. In Namibia, we have in Zimbabwe. So, they, you know, we, we've seen changes that have happened. Um, I think when people leave the continent to train in high income settings, I, you know, I do think that they find the grass is greener. It's certainly a whole lot easier there um, for themselves, you know, their family. They usually earn more. And, and then it's really difficult to come home. But it's also really difficult to come home when you've been taught unachievable um, interventions, actually. So so you, you learn how to do ECMO and you learn how to do the best, the highest level care for, for, for the children. And, and in your mind's eye, you can say, you can, you can list hundreds of children that you have seen who would have benefited from it. And then you go home and you feel your hands are tired. And so by teaching people what they can do within their, their resource availability, their resource limits, whilst advocating for the next step up, I think perhaps that's maybe a little bit more empowering. That's that's one of the theories anyway. Yeah, that um, retention rate is just extraordinary. Um, we don't have that that retention rate in the UK. I mean, half our old trainees are actually at this conference in India, having worked with us and are now moved here. Um, one of the maps you showed was a, a sort of a COVID survey of of resources, and it showed showed clearly, you know, the incredible resource available in the uh, high income countries, and the lack in the low income countries, but also loads of gaps. Um, and the gaps, you weren't sure whether they were gaps because there was no resource available, or whether because they just didn't engage. Um, and obviously, that's impossible for you to say say which ones are which. But how do you 
it sounds as if in Malawi there has been a progression and a very smart sequential progression which probably started 10 years ago and now we're more than that and now and now we're where we are how do you start from zero the the countries where there is nothing you know I mean um, this morning I was reading an article about the um, utter devastation in the Congo uh, all our battery powered devices I'm currently looking at at least two of mine um, and the catastrophe of battery powered cars not for the inner cities of the high income countries who are all pushing these things but for the countries where the mines are is just utterly devastating so I don't know what the intensive care scenario is in the, in the Congo but a country like that which is in devastating is in war economic crisis where do we even begin to start to look at that kind of thing so, so my feeling is and you know I so show the small steps for big impact because the problem is you, you have a situation like that and it's just it, it, there is just so much wrong um, that it becomes overwhelming but you say where people have nothing people never have nothing there's always something um, no matter how small it is there's always something and and so I think you know, I, th- I think that you need to look at, do an inventory, essentially. So what have you got? What is available? And how best can you use the infrastructure that is there? So, you know, the slide that I showed is you use what you what you have, do what you can, but do something, really. Um, so it's it start with something. So, so I think doing an inventory, seeing what is the available, what is potentially available, how are existing services being used, and, and where are opportunities to use those better? Um, again, it's not just in healthcare facilities that, that we can impact on critical care. We can train community health workers, um, volunteers, families to recognizing you know, flags, red flags with their own children and taking response, responses, you know, easy, easy things like oral rehydration fluid in response to diarrhea. We can teach moms how to do that. That's critical care. You know, that's helping children in a meaningful way. Um, we can look at, at you know, implementing nurse practitioners who can who can prescribe anti- appropriate antibiotics in a timely fashion without requiring the child to still have to travel to a center in order to access that care. So we can we can look at where care is being provided, who is providing the care and perhaps challenge that. Um, so, so no, you know, somewhere like the Congo, you know, we don't. It's just chaos, and there's there's no electricity. There's there isn't the infrastructure. It it would be inappropriate to start trying to put in an intensive. You know, that would just that wouldn't make any sense. But in terms of of early and timely recognition of impending or potential or real critical illness, and then you know taking steps to to mitigate to um, prevent progression to act in a way that is possible and appropriate. And you're not going to save everyone, you know, if that, that's not possible. But I do think small differences can be made. And once you start making small differences, it has to grow. Um, so I, th- I think we need to look and, and looking through the continuum of care from home through to facilities where they exist um, and looking at what's available. And I think we can do that anywhere. I suppose in a way you have to go back to the basics like re-establishing immunization program which probably would have disappeared or introducing oral rehydration or whatever it is because I think the same thing may be happening in Sudan now with the the war going on there. Sudan had a fantastic healthcare system and from what I hear from some of my friends things are gradually crumbling. So I think in a way 
re-establishing some of the easier options, i.e. immunization, yes. maybe a start. Uh, Absolutely. Forget about uh, anything in terms of intensive care because basics is absolutely essential, isn't it? And, and I say in that context, you know, the basic care is critical care. It is. And, and I do feel immunization is critical care. You don't immunize and, you you know, it's a disaster. So you have to you have to take prevention as part of that critical care continuum. So absolutely getting the basics right, getting children immunized, um, you know, uh, early triage, appropriate action with what you have. Um, and then you can start looking at, at sustainable options for, you know, for provision of, of higher level care, which people are looking at. And, and certainly there are groups in the Congo, um, in Sierra Leone, in other areas um, of, of, you know, really resource poor and, and of conflict where they are looking at, at sustainable um, power supplies for, for providing higher levels of care where it's appropriate. We've talked a lot about the healthcare options, but there's also a significant societal um, culture shift for the parents as well. Um, you give a very upsetting example about a child with with sickle cell disease. Uh, yes, I can give. Unfortunately, I can give a few a few examples. Uh, it's um, yeah. So 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 that 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 child was was admitted to um, an ICU that that we visited in Nigeria, where parents have to pay out of pocket for the care that their their children receive, um, and and this child was admitted with a sickle cell crisis. You know, was really sick, um, but the parents couldn't afford the linen on the hospital bed, um, let alone you know the the, the blood that the child needed um, and other critical care interventions. Uh, you know, I feel this is fundamentally unjust. I do not think that should happen. I don't. I don't know that every child has the right to invasive mechanical ventilation. I think if you're looking at a child's health perspective, that's an un, unrealizable right. But I do think that every child has the right to basic critical care, um, and and health health provision, which is not being met at the moment. Um, and so, yes. So 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 there's that there's that inequity. So there's huge. You know, there's glo these global inequities, and then you get inequities. That are much, you know, much more regional. They they right there in front of you, where you know the bed on the left hand side, you have you know a relatively wealthy family, two teachers and a child, you know, with cardiomyopathy who who is being managed, um, and then this child who who will be palliated, but but cannot but cannot be treated, and and that's that's I don't know how we fix that except as I say I do feel that we should be agreeing globally on a minimum package of care that every child has a right to and should access regardless of, of their financial um, status. And I, I think, yeah, that's universal health care that I think we should be aiming towards. When you mentioned the interventions which are classified under under critical care, if you take a, a step further back, would contraception be a part of that? You know, um, yeah. you said in your talk that the parents said, well, if this one dies, we can have another one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, I mean, I think there's so many different cultures and, and perspectives on children. And I, you know, I know what my own values are. I I understand that people have different values and, and different perceptions, and that's reasonable. But I do think we need to look at at child rights and child autonomy. Um, and I and I think that we can look at globally and we can challenge. I do believe that we should be challenging that. Um in Africa specifically, some of the, the things that we could challenge are, are societal perspectives on healthcare, where people are often very scared of, of healthcare. You know, there's often a perception that, that oxygen kills. 
Um, I think it's completely understandable because people go into into hospitals, they get oxygen and they die. Um, and so, you know, you know, ventilation can kill people, and um, which which is which is true. And you know, the the problem is again, you know, if people if people are implementing high level care without community engagement, then you have have these misperceptions arising and distrust of the healthcare systems. And so I do think that we need to to um, look when we're establishing healthcare systems or trying to improve our healthcare systems is we need to have similar to the research, we need to have community advisory boards essentially where, where we can liaise with the community about, about their expectations, their understanding, um, their needs and how we can actually you know, address those rather than just coming from, you know, our paternalistic perspective and trying to fix everything, which which I do think we're guilty of sometimes as well, especially from the sort of the Western med- medical approach. I think when you talk about contraception, is I think it's very controversial in a lot of societies. Mm. Um, the thing that I think Bangladesh did was effectively introduce, made female education virtually compulsory. And by doing that, effectively, you achieve one, increases in GDP, yes. and fewer children and healthier children around. So I think perhaps in a way, by thrusting these uh, ideas on people without providing the societal care, it just doesn't work. And people yeah. will then rebel and they'll sort of say, well, to hell with your Western medicine. And this, I think that's what happened in Nigeria. You know, they, they say, no way, you're bringing in your ideas when we are exactly. losing children from diarrhea or whatever it is. Uh, yes. So I think, yes. I think the approach that Bangladesh took was really fantastic. Yeah, but I mean, I think you know, teach the girl children is is a fantastic uh, approach, and you know, you know, we really need to step out of our box as healthcare professionals and look at the bigger picture because we can't see ourselves in isolation either. And so we need to look at you know all aspects. You know, these are the social determinants of health, and education is one of them. Um, so education is hugely important for health. And and we can't we can't ignore those aspects. So yeah, and and we can't expect the same values, the same you know, our hand wringing about some of the things we do in our very high high income countries um, to be priorities in a country where you can die from diarrhea. That's just ridiculous to to have the same values because your priorities are simply different, aren't they? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, so tell us, Brenda, about um, your fantastic hospital in South Africa. We, we've spoken about some of the difficulties, but you've been part of this extraordinary hospital and you've done a huge amounts of great work there. So, um, so bring the tone back up for us. So, so firstly, I must just say, I think we, 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 are, we are very lucky at, at Red Cross Children's Hospital, partly because we have a fundraising um, unit that raises private funds to supplement the government funding, which certainly helps. Um, but, you know, I do think that we are a flagship institution for, for the African continent, really. So we, you know, we, we're, our, we're a pediatric specialist tertiary hospital affiliated to the University of Cape Town. Um, there are over 300 pediatric beds in all specialities, medical and surgical and we have a neonatal high care unit as well. Um, and our ICU is is 26 beds at the moment. It's a multidisciplinary ICU. Uh, and we are able to offer high-tech intervention. We have limited ECMO, um, invasive mechanical ventilation. We do transplantation, hearts, kidneys, liver fairly regularly. Um, and, and we have, you know, we have really good expertise. We have a good training program. And so our, our staff are very well trained. We have fairly good retention of staff as well. 
people like working there, so they tend to stay there. Um, so, so the hospital was yeah was established after the World War in the 1950s. Um, and it's it's really interesting the the history of our critical care program because we were probably one of the first in the world to start invasively ventilating children with with positive pressure ventilation through tracheostomies. Um, so we had it was a tetanus ward um, where at that point you know, 90% of kids admitted with tetanus were dying. And so I think it was Pat Smythe at that point was was performing tracheostomies um, and paralyzing children and ventilating them with this handmade hodgepodge of bellows. And he was he was invasively ventilating children. And he managed to bring the mortality down to to 10 percent um, and also at that point addressed addressed things like, you know, nosocomial infection, identified the fact that the tracheostomy was actually a breeding ground for bugs and, and needed changing. And so even now we, we change our trackies every day, which is apparently not right. every single day, which is not standard practice across the world. But we've carried on since the 1950s. Um, when children go home, that's what they do. They change the trackie at home every day and clean it. And then they, they only have two tracheostomies, but. Um, trachea tubes and they one spare and one in and they they swap it around every day and and you know our blockage rate is really really low um yeah so so we've actually been offering intensive care since the 1950s before they could they were offering pediatric intensive care officially in the united states um and very rapidly we were able to offer intensive care for medical surgical cardiothoracic conditions as well um and i say now we 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 have uh, if you walk into our icu it looks like a high income standard icu the difference is the patients that we treat because our patients come from really impoverished areas with all of the the diseases associated with poverty so which which makes which makes um our site a really good training um, facility because the people that can come to us are learning how to manage those diseases the same diseases that they are seeing at home but looking at what what the options are for progressing their treatment um and so so we really can target our training in that way which is which is really great i think um and and the research that we do it's it's also great because you know we have the patience you know that that um with 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 these problems these the uh, of the burden you know burden of disease problems that we we can manage and we have we have really good research output from our hospital as well and from our unit which we we quite proud of um so it's an interesting it's an interesting place to work because it's a bit of this, the ju- a juxtaposition um in the type of patients we see but the type of care that we can we can deliver so brenda tell me who would you refer to when once the kiddies get to 17 or 18 or 19 is there an <laughs> adult service available Yes, there is. So there's Hrytiskia Hospital, which is our adult equivalent up the hill, which is also affiliated with the University of Cape Town. And there are a number of adult facilities around. Stellenbosch University has an adult hospital. There, there is now a pediatric ICU at, at Stellenbosch University as well, a smaller one. Um, so there are adult facilities that we refer to. Uh, one of the gaps is our adolescent services. Um, so there is there is really minimal dedicated adolescent care. Um, available and and so that continuum sometimes becomes quite difficult um, with our with our chronic patients, chronic complex patients, where we we do tend to hold on to them a little bit long um, <laughs> before we refer <laughs> we refer on. But um, but there is there is a, a system in place to to refer. Um, you said that the case mix is similar to other areas in Southern Africa with the ex- extreme <laughs> amounts of poverty. Um, and we've heard how in the uh, impressive, but but um, uh, yet to be fully embedded intensive care unit in Malawi, and the initial mortality was 26%. Um, what's your mortality 
So I think we're sitting at around 5% at the moment um, in our ICU, um, with our risk-adjusted mortality being favorable in terms of, of um, you know, severity of disease on admission. So we are we are doing, I think, pretty well. That's very impressive. I mean, ours is about 2.8%, but but obviously we have we don't have the level of um sickness and also trauma is pretty big in your world isn't it yes yeah no trauma is really really a problem um you know sepsis is a problem we have children coming in you know with malnutrition with comorbid conditions late presentation is is a real problem still um and and so there's yeah there's a knock-on effect so i think there's there's a number of of aspects there but uh, yeah generally i think we we're not doing too badly is hiv a still a problem or are you now managing it well in the community? So it is much better um, and our rollout, you know, mother to trial transmission prevention program rollout has been hugely successful. And so it's it's a different it's a different disease now, um, largely. You know, it's a chronic, a chronic manageable disease. That being said, there are children who fall through the gaps. Um, and and so we do still see HIV infection um, in infants and children, but we are at now able to implement treatment rapidly which is which makes all the difference so even when we do we, we do have a child that you know presenting with you know with aids they are able we are able to implement treatment um which is which is fantastic um so if i say the word rehab to you will you will you ever stop talking or will you, can you just uh <laughs> um i might not you might be what is the time <laughs> Yes, what do you want to know about rehab? So, so, so that's your thing. Isn't it? it it is one of my things. Rehab is one of my things. So yes, I'm a physiotherapist by training. So I am I am currently not employed by the hospital as a physiotherapist. I do some clinic. I do some clinical work and I oversee some clinical work. But um, clearly, I have a huge interest in in rehabilitation generally. Um, we have been doing ICU based rehabilitation since I started there in 1996, mainly because. I just didn't see why we shouldn't be. Um, it was a no-brainer to me. If children were lying still, that they probably shouldn't be lying still. And so, um, you know, we had children on bird ventilators that I was getting up and out of bed and and moving. Um, I remember one child who was a C1C2 subluxation, a pseudoachondroplastic dwarf, one of my first patients. So I had was fresh out of university, um, and here was this child who was you know, completely paralysed, who said to me that he wanted to swim. And so we put this child in the back of my beetle. We bagged him up to the adult hospital where there was a hydrotherapy pool. And we got him in the pool with tracheostomy, bagging him by hand the entire way. We didn't have any transport ventilators. Um, you know, so we had, you know, we had a registrar with us and a nurse with us, spare tracky, and and off we went. And I guess maybe I was just naive. I didn't sort of think what could go wrong. Um, but yeah, you know, we had we had we could resus if we needed to. It was we had suction equipment with a foot pump, it was it was all fine. Um but actually seeing that child who was in ICU for about six months, you know, improve to the point where he could actually transfer himself to and from his wheelchair. He could change his own trackie. He went back home, back to school. Um, he actually lived until he was 21 um, with with a high C-spine lesion and, and mandatory ventilation. You know, it obviously rehab was a small part of that of that process for him, but it, it made complete sense. 
And so from the very beginning, I've been pushing, getting children up, getting children moving, keeping sedation low um, and asking on round, you know, do you, do you actually need this child to be knocked out to this extent? Can we not wake them up a little bit, get them moving? Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's only very recently that it's sort of become sexy on a, on a worldwide level with, with, you know, ICU liberation bundles and protocols Um as I think it's something, you know, we've just always been doing it because it made sense. Uh, protocolizing it, I think, helps in many ways. It helps people, certainly who haven't been doing it, to feel s- safer, um, to have some sort of a process in place, to sort of some rules to follow um, and, and yeah, rules of engagement. So I think that's useful. I don't know that it's also completely necessary always, but um, it's been an interesting, interesting journey to watch essentially the rest of the world catch up. We never wrote it up though, but um, it's, yeah, it's, it's just been, it's been a really interesting journey. Um, so first to, uh, to ventilation, first to um, liberation bundles. So well, um, I don't know if we were first in that. Really, yeah. but, um, so what are you doing now, which we need to catch up? Goodness, what are we doing now? <laughs> well, we can get just engaged currently in, 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 there's a lot of research activity that we're doing, global research that we're trying to become involved in. Um, and really, I think we're trying to get the voice of, of, low middle income countries as part of, of the research agenda, the global research agenda. Um, and at the moment, you know, developing consensus guidelines is very popular. There's a lot of that going on, but it's largely been high income settings that have been pushing the agendas. And um, so now I, I, I'm, I'm part of a number of these processes. There's PALIC2, there's bubble CPAP processes, implement, uh, implementation processes, rehabilitation um, development protocols. There, there, there are a number of different processes that I'm trying to be well, I've been invited to be part of, I think, partly because I represent more resource constrained regions. I sort of tick some boxes and because I am an, you know, an allied health professional. But I think getting getting the voice and the perspective of different settings is really important um, in creating those those global agendas um, for inclusion for and to be feasible and appropriate to different settings. So I think that's I've got my fingers in a lot of different pies at the moment um, and trying to trying to improve yeah the voice I think of of the world and and of different professions trying to flatten the hierarchy. Brenda, I'm, I'm, I've just been uh, reading a a book by. Paul Farmer, who sadly died last year, one of the things that you've just said to me, I've highlighted, it says, you know, that one of the things he was at pains to assert was the interconnectedness of the rich and the poor. And I think what you're describing is that, and that has to happen because I think we are one world. And I think if we don't do that, then we are never going to get peace on this, on this planet. Absolutely. And then the, you know, the divide is just getting bigger and bigger and we need to close the gaps. Yeah. Um, and however we do that, we need to, you know, we need to, it, it needs to be really purposeful. It's not just tokenism. It's actually it's holding hands across the world and and trying to make a difference to the world's children. And I think that that's what I'm trying to do in my small way, I think. <laughs> what you just said was absolutely admirable. You know, I think what you're doing is fantastic. So uh, congratulations. really. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brenda. Um, that's truly inspiring. And um, thank you for your work on behalf of World PICU, but especially those who aren't as lucky as us in our uh, ivory tower PICUs. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Bye then.